Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the George Poo Show. As always, my name is Soam. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I'm here with George today. How's the day going, George? Very not bad. Running late, but you know, excited as always. Uh, did you watch the World Cup the last weekend? Yeah, it was uh, probably one of the best I've seen. One mm-hmm. of the best finals. It was a crazy game, and then on top of that, like, there's just been like so much stuff that went on in like the world too, right? So I guess we should probably start getting into it. First thing we were talking about just today, right? Like SPF got granted bail for like 250 million, and the other FTX co-founder, he and Alameda CEO both also plead guilty. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a really fast development. Going back to where we began with, I think a couple of days ago, there was media circulation that Sam Bankman-Fried actually wants to drop the fight into extradition and being extradited right away. So there's so many reasons, there's so many like speculations about why he's doing that. One of the prominent reasons, which I believe is that the Bahamian prison, which he is being held at, has really, really bad conditions. So apparently, I think that's like a deal he made with the prosecutors. Mm-hmm. I think secondly, apparently, he just got released today on bail, right? So I think bail and house arrest is also one of the conditions for him to agree to get extradited. From my understanding, I think it's a good deal for him, um, given how bad the Bahamian prison really is. But in the meantime, you know, like extradition fights usually can take for years, right? So I think for prosecutors, it's really a win for them. And so Bankman Free, I think that's a win for him as well, being a house arrest for a bond of $250 million, which mm-hmm. is a lot of money. So, so I'm what's your take? I feel a majority of what you said. I honestly didn't even know that Bahamian prisons, that like, conditions were that bad. I was just thinking that, yeah, in general, like, he probably just wanted to come back to the United States. So that's kind of why, um, you know, like, he made, like, yeah, that agreement for bail and everything like that. I feel like the house arrest part is definitely really good for him because I don't know how well he would do in something like that. Like the way he kind of grew up, I would assume prison is a complete opposite. You wouldn't be used to that kind of a crowd of people at all. So it'd be it'd be really bad for him, I think, like uh, if he were to go straight to jail and stuff like that, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and, the U.S. is a really special country. I think mm-hmm. if you commit this crime in any other country in the world, I don't, I don't think you'll get granted house arrest. Yeah, I was just gonna ask, like, yeah, and what are your thoughts about, like, you know, like the co-founder and like uh, Alameda CEO also, like, uh, you know, like taking that plea agreement and kind of just, like pleading guilty. Yeah, I mean, I haven't really been that involved in the legal system, but like from seeing some shows and movies about it, I think what usually they do is they try to flip, quote unquote, flip the mm-hmm. co-founder Gary Wayne and then you know the Alameda CEO Caroline. I think they hold key information into indicting and committing SBF. And I think they have the evidence and their testimony will convince a juror in deciding their ways. So I think those are more valuable to the prosecutors than, let's say, giving them like equal sentence. The three of them should be in jail for the equal amount of time. So usually if they flip, they will receive a lesser sentence from my mm-hmm. understanding. So I do think on their perspective, it's, it is a good deal. And then, you know, from the that last episode with Matt was there, we were talking about Caroline was spotting in New York City, right? So I think now it's just all finally catching up together. So it seems like she was making a deal with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. So I'm just really surprised to see the development. Yeah, I definitely think that the DOJ is trying to make an example of SBF. I think they didn't really want any of the smaller fish. I think they only wanted SBF, so they're okay with any kind of a plea agreement. Because I know it's not public yet what the punishment is going to be for everyone else that uh, took the agreement, but I think they really, really wanted SBF and they want to make an example out of him to make sure that something like this does not happen again. So it's going to be kind of exciting just to see how like everything's going to play out in the next couple of, I would say months, like usually I would, I would say years, but it seems like this is developing really fast. Like 
I think everything would happen like this close together. I thought it was going to take as long a time as humanly possible. And I think it's really fishy. You just have to get it out there. I think it's really fishy for him to get arrested a day before his U.S. Senate hearing. I feel like that's just really weird to me that how he got arrested a day before that. I think people want to tune in into him speaking at the U.S. hearing. But then he got sent to jail right away. So I think people won't hear about from his side of the story again, which is weird. When you're testifying in the U.S. Senate, you're supposed to be under oath or mm-hmm. you'll be perjury. Like the New York Times speech, everything like that, it's not perjury. It's just evidence, right? But we have yeah. yet to hear that. I think that's somehow fishy. Might be a coincidence, though. No, I think I agree with you. It's definitely um, fishy is probably the best word for it. I disagree with the fact that I think the DOJ just does not want to be embarrassed. And, you know, like Sam Friedman being a free man, just like walking into the Senate, just being able to just like talk. You know, be, what if he start making jokes? Like then the entire like Department of Justice kind of looks like an embarrassment, right? So I think that they couldn't let him just uh, after seeing how New York Times just gave him such softball questions. He was able to just like joke around. Like, I don't think they want to take that risk again, right? Like uh, the reputation will get hurt too much then. Yeah, that's fair. And I think this will be a great hit for the crypto industry as a whole as well. Not in terms of the industry itself, but in the, in the eyes of the public perceptions. I think before this indictment, before this arrest, people were like just saying, okay, this might not be something that we have to worry about, right? The day-to-day people, the average folks. Mm-hmm. But now with this indictment, with more and more coming to light, I think people are realizing how serious it is that what mm-hmm. he has committed. And I think yeah. it's bad for crypto who are looking to get average people to be on board. For sure. And I think uh, this also adds that layer of security and just like verification that we did not have in the crypto industry for like the past two years, like since NFTs booming and everything like that. If you saw somebody buy for something, you were willing to just buy for something higher. There was no word of valuation anymore, right? Like no one really cared. We'd just like pay whatever. And just seeing like this boom just completely burst out, this bubble just popping. I think it's definitely going to add like a lot more. It's like, you know, like, people actually going to start verifying like, hey, is this crypto a real one or is it like one of these shit coins? Like, and it's going to be like a pretty good thing for the crypto industry. I think in general, like this correction, I think was really healthy for it. And I think one big news item, I think last week was that Binance, quote unquote, might not make it. I'm not sure if you saw that. There was a $6 billion of outflows from Binance, I think last week. And then its CEO, CZ, Chen Penzhao, Went on CNBC squat box, uh, got grilled by the hosts, the transparency of finance, legal structure of finance, which I remember there was two things that really caught my eye. The first is that SBF paid finance $2 billion to buy other shares. So that mm-hmm. now that FTX is in bankruptcy court, um, that $2 billion might get quote unquote clawed back. And while clawed back just means that that money is essentially dirty money, it's essentially customer funds. So the bankruptcy mm-hmm. court will have to ask the um, corresponding parties to pay it back. And when asked about, okay, are you okay with those $2 billion being called back? CZ said, okay, we just like, we were paying FTT tokens for $2 billion. Now they're worth about $400 million and we just forget about it. And I think that was a major red flag for many people. How can you forget $400 million? Mm-hmm. What happened to your accounting? What happened to your like books? And also the guy asked about why haven't Binance been audited so far? Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big question. And I think his answer was, you know, the big four is they don't really understand how to audit a cryptocurrency firm. And then people obviously talk about Coinbase, which is a public company and properly audited. And I think he said, okay, Coinbase, we don't talk about Coinbase at Binance. Uh, we don't think they're the same category as us. I would say it's a really weird interview. And then he said, when he asked, okay, are you okay? Can you take any more customer outflows? Can you release your financial audits? His answer is, okay, we are financially strong. 
and then the host roll her eyes. Uh, apparently, so it's, <laughs> uh, it's very interesting development. So like, I know so I probably don't know that much um, about Binance, but like, what do you think after hearing this like news? You know, I just think it's really shocking because it was him that kind of set this whole thing in motion too, right? Just about FTX too. He's the one that like tweeted out saying, "I'm going to sell all of my um, FTT tokens," and then that's kind of like the like the domino that kind of started everything. So it's kind of interesting to see that he did something like that when he didn't understand that the repercussions. If number one falls and you're number two, you're going to become the new number one. All the eyes are going to be on you. It's kind of interesting that. You would like do something like this without realizing that hey, now there's gonna be a lot more scrutiny on me as well. And it seems that yeah, like if I was in his situation and like something like this happened, I think I would have been completely ready to like you know release my books publicly and just take all that market share kind of like situation. But it seems like he really didn't strategize this well at all. Like I think that's one of my biggest like takeaways from this. I think this week has been quieting down a little bit more on the withdrawals. But my mm-hmm. understanding is that the people who have withdrawn money, it's very hard for them to put the money back again, right? Given that you already spent all the efforts to take your money out. I feel like Matt said last week, it might be a win for cryptocurrency this time. It might be something that's actually good happened once, which is people are taking money off exchanges. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm just really hard to envision a future where people still have that much trust in exchanges anymore after what happened with FTX. I can definitely like agree with you completely. Like uh, with what Matt's saying, like that non-custodial part is important. Like having something where you have custody of the crypto itself, because or else you never know. Like if these firms are not being audited, like I think Coinbase is still pretty trustworthy, just because yeah, they're public. You know, like a big four is auditing them. You know, like those deposits are staying in Coinbase. Like there's definitely protocols in place. Like there's controls there. But when it comes to something like these, like five companies, like Binance, FTX, anything like that that have full custody of your money, your deposit, and like the token that you claim that you own, it gets kind of like wonky when it comes to that. So yeah, I definitely echo that non-custodial where like these exchanges are not the only people in the market should be something that should grow. And I think it will grow in the next couple of years. Yeah. And I think the issue really is like, I've heard it from Twitter, so it might not be as authentic, but majority of their reserves, finance reserves are reserves in BNB, which is their primary token. And BUSD, I could mm-hmm. be wrong there, but like it's basically their stablecoin project. So those two coins are the majority of their reserves. So if those two cryptocurrencies lose value significantly, then Binance might be in the same shoes as FTX, given that you know if it didn't commingle the funds, mm-hmm. if one customer fund is equal to one customer fund and they did not commingle, then they should be fine. But if the other way happens, then it could be another disaster for the industry, which uh, if happens, I wouldn't be surprised, which is such a big thing to say. Yeah, I just think one thing that really needs to happen is if you have your own tokens, you have your own fund or something, there should be a clear line between that and being an exchange. Like in, for like stocks, you'll never see a company that's like, you know, has their own like stock or anything like that. That's going to be an exchange. And like all that stuff is always very separate from each other. Right? They're kind of siloed from each other. They don't communicate with each other. Like the way like Binance, FTX, they have their own tokens and they have all customer deposits going to for those tokens, it gets so messy like and convoluted in terms of like where is the money? Like is it in what? It's like, and I think that needs to be something we do address at one point. I think it will be hard. I just feel like, you know, pe- like crypto, people are playing by the rules of a few certain protocols like Ethereum, which created many other coins. I think everyone has been playing by those protocols um, and I think there's a lot of restrictions than people actually thought. So my opinion about it is I think the industry should take a deep look about, you know, how can it make it more mainstream for people aside from just speculations, right? Because anyone can speculate the coin prices mm-hmm. 
And my aunt is in cryptocurrency. She bought a lot of tokens, not because she understands it, but she wants to speculate. I mm-hmm. think the majority of the people that I know who are into cryptocurrencies are doing that. So how do you move from just speculation into something more concrete? I think it's a long way to go after what happened this year. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think that's like a good way to kind of like uh, go into our next topic too for in terms of speculation is on Elon Musk and Twitter, the newest update for it. You see his poll, George, about him asking if people want him to step down or not? I've seen it. What are your thoughts on that? Like, uh, so it turned out like it was, I think, 58% yes and 42% no was like the final. So more people do want him to step down. What are your thoughts on that, George? I think if he posted a different time, then the results might actually be different. I remember he posted right after a Twitter public policy failures. They added a new policy, which basically prohibited you as a Twitter user to post anything on other social media platforms. So if you're like, okay, add me on the George Pooh uh, Instagram, for example, you will be blocked. You will be banned for at least a couple of days. I'm not sure how long the ban is. You cannot say you're on TikTok. Actually, I think you can say you're on TikTok because TikTok is not competing with them. So all the other platforms are competing with Twitter. You cannot be saying that you are doing that on Twitter. So it's, it created a lot of public outcries. And I feel like people who support him, people who do not support him, they both became really angry and upset about this news. And I think uh, Paul Graham, which is the founder of Y Combinator, got banned on Twitter because he posted something about, uh, this is a last straw, you can find my garden name, MetaDonald accounts uh, on my website. So he didn't post the actual account, he just mentioned the name of the social media site that's competing with Twitter, and his account got banned. And that was like a shock to many people in tech, at least. Because he has like 1.2 million followers. He's the founder of a combinator. So people are just really shocked to see that. So I mm-hmm. think there's a public outcry against this. And then he posted about the poll. And I feel like people are just saying more likely to vote yes. Because they're just like really angry about the policy. And I think he said, okay, in the future, this won't happen again. Every policy will be voted upon. But I just feel like there's some twists about this news. What's your main reaction mm-hmm. when you saw it? I'll answer that back with one other question. Like, what do you think? This one of the big conspiracy theories that's out there is like people are thinking that Elon Musk kind of did that whole thing on purpose. Yeah, like they, he timed it so that it would be when people hate him the most because you saw like Tesla is like getting a lot of pressure. Like their entire stock is plummeting. Shareholders are getting mad. Like a trillion dollar company, it's less than 400 billion now in terms of its market cap. So like a lot of people were saying that like a big reason why Elon did this whole like thing was so that people like he can like step down from Twitter itself. Could you see that happening? Like, do you think so or no? I think it might, because when you're a public company, you have some major shareholders um, mm-hmm. that really, I think, really has a lot of say in how the company should be run. For example, so um, you're like a Tesla shareholder, you own majority, not majority, but you own like a, you're a large minority holder of the company. Like, mm-hmm. would you want him to be running Twitter, or would you want him to be go back running Tesla more full time? Yeah, speaking the eyes of a shareholder of Tesla, yeah, I probably wouldn't want him to run Twitter because. Elon Musk kind of is Tesla. I think if anybody else did the exact same company that Elon Musk did for Tesla, it wouldn't have grown this much in terms of its market cap. Like the fact that at one point it was worth over a trillion, a lot of it was because people kind of bet on Elon. Right? Like people said that, yeah, like a car company itself should not be worth that much. I think anyone can agree with that. Like, you know, like the margins for a car company just don't really justify a valuation like that. It's like all the next steps of what Tesla's going to do, right? With the AI, the self-driving, the energy component of their batteries and things like that. And so, like, yeah, a lot of people did just bet on Elon for Tesla. So, yeah, as a shareholder, I definitely don't think so. But kind of as, like, a general public member, I personally do think, like, Elon would have done, like, a good job on Twitter, but I just don't think 
there's enough time in the day for him to be able to do everything. Yeah, I think it should be okay. But he's been selling Tesla stocks to make loan payments for Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's how those companies got mingled together in the ways that no one should see that coming. Like those company, two companies are not related. They're not in the same industry. They're mm-hmm. very different. Their value prop is very different. Their solution is very different. And, and honestly, their, their market cap is very different. Twitter is, it shouldn't be worth $44 billion to begin with. It could be when the market is good, but I think there's just like been so many changes. I feel like if he were to wait a couple months, one or two months after making the bid offer, I think he wouldn't buy it 100%. So yeah. I feel like it's unfortunate. You know, I definitely agree. I think if Elon could have gotten out of it, like I know once the courts kind of got involved, like Elon was kind of forced into buying it. I think if he could have gotten out of it at that point, he definitely would have wanted out of it. Or at the very least, wanted a much lower valuation. Just because, yeah, like Twitter is not something that's like easily monetizable. Like when you see the other social medias like Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok, there's like clear places to put in ads. There's clear like, you know, like user bases that you're targeting, things like that. Twitter is a lot more just like a general like town hall. And it's hard to really like monetize something like that, right? So yeah, I agree. Like forty-four billion for the company is a lot. I think uh if you completely revamp it with the user base it has, you could probably get it to something around that. But not him buying it that was definitely like very high. And then yeah, like I also like I'll echo the fact that there's two completely different companies and then you will have to pay what one or two billion in interest every single year for just him buying Twitter. It's just gonna be crazy. Like the more and more Tesla shares he has to sell, like there's going to be less and less shareholders that trust in Tesla. Like if Elon's basically just tanking his own like uh, like equity in it, and uh, you know, and you, one of the biggest reasons you bet on Tesla was because of Elon. You're probably not going to be as confident in the company's future as well, right? Especially when now that like there's a lot of economic downturns and a lot of pressure coming like downward as well. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely concerning. That's something to be proud about. Okay, this guy bought Twitter. I just personally feel like Twitter, like if it dies tomorrow, like Zohan, would you feel sad about it? Twitter? Yeah. I think I'll feel extremely sad actually just because of how ingrained it is in terms of individualistic journalism that we have in it, right? Right now, a majority of the media you consume in terms of like, you know, journalism news, if it's through like New York Times, CNN, all these like different platforms, we've kind of seen how like they've shown their biases in recent days. No, at the very least on Twitter, you can kind of see both perspectives. You can like search for people that you trust and everything like that. So I would be very sad because you'd miss out on so much discourse as well, right? Because there's so many people on Twitter that's kind of like get together and explain things like that. Like, that's why I love Twitter or Reddit as well. It's like the amount of like intelligent people that just want to have that conversation in public and you can just like kind of like gnaw at their brain. I guess the argument, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. My argument is that if it dies, wouldn't some other problem take its place? Like, wouldn't people still want to find a similar solution just to build something like this? You know, like one without debt. You see some like private equity deals mm-hmm. into like some really traditional companies that has a lot of debt, right? Like some retailers has a lot of debt that just got, should be dumped. The argument is that should we keep saving the old brand or mm-hmm. should we start something new without the toxic debt that's dragging it underneath? So I feel like now is really a time to question it. I definitely think it's really useful. I'm a big Twitter user. I'm a power user. I use it a lot. And in my early entrepreneur days, I learned a lot of the actual experiences there, then from books, you know, then from like journalists teaching you how to start a startup or build a company. So I would definitely feel really sad about it. But is it essentially my life? It's arguable, right? Mm-hmm. It's not something that's essential to your life. Your phone is essential to your life. Your laptop is essential to your life. And there's some apps, I'm sure, that are essential. A social media app is just arguably not really like essential to you. 
right? If, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, but don't you think they can just lay off more people and just be financially comfortable with it? Or do you think they have to be really turning up really gigantic profit to be able to do that? Because how can you make $2 billion a year in profits? I think that's really tough for, for a company like that. Yeah, no, no. In terms of the profit part and like, yeah, laying off people, honestly, I have no idea what's going on inside of Twitter. And like, I would love to be able to see that. Like, I don't know how many people they need. The amount they've laid off and nothing's really changing the experience of it. I'm sure there might be even some people now that are kind of redundant in the company. And then, like, I guess to your bigger point about like, oh, if Twitter were to die, like, would there be something else to kind of replace it? I would probably argue that there wouldn't be, though, just because I feel like um, it's social media is kind of like this one place where, you know, like uh, content creators want to go where all the customers are, where all like the users are, and users kind of want to go where all the highest quality content creators are. You know, like, it's really hard. And so, like, a lot of customers are just very sticky when it comes to, like, they pick their social media. Like, you know, when TikTok, like, started blowing up, it's because of how much the dopamine you get per video, right? Like, I think, like, tweets or something, like, more in text form is going to be really hard to scale up. Like, you're not going to be able to get more and more users as fast. So, I would still personally like to see Twitter, like, stay. And, like, um, yeah, it sucks that Elon can be a part of it. Like, uh, especially like, the people voted. And I think that's been, like, the best thing Elon's, like, brought to the table is just let the people vote on, like, big decisions. But... I definitely do think that Twitter, as the way it is, kind of should be staying just because of how important it is for information when it, it gets out there. Mm-hmm. I wish she has more time. I yeah. wish she has more time to turn it around. Um, so unfortunately, it doesn't, doesn't look like that's the case. Mm-hmm. I feel like whatever change you want to make in life, and especially in business, with, a, with an app this big, like I said, in the first time we talked about this, about the Twitter deal, I just think he needs more time to get this done. Like now with a very toxic debt dragging it off like every single day, it's such a big pressure to be going under that, right? You might be the, yeah, the most, the richest man on earth, but you have to now, now he has to make interest payments that are so yeah. big. Many of us can actually relate to, you know, paying, paying some interest payments for that. Like many of us, like listeners can, can relate to that too, right? It's just super tough to do that mm-hmm. while running and focusing on running a business. I just feel like it's really shame, a shame that that happens. And then I think today, I think, Half of the Twitter public relations team got laid off. I think many engineers got laid off as well today. And Tesla is announcing layoffs in Q1 of next year. So just really bad news. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, I don't, you don't really want to see, hear the bad news from another entrepreneur. But it just seems like this purchase, at, at least at this time, doesn't look like the wisest purchase. Um, and I know he's forced to do it. So it's, it's not yeah. Well. So what's your take? Yeah, no, I definitely agree that like. Well, I mean, I guess I, I don't want to say hindsight is 2020 yet, just because everything hasn't played out yet. So, you never know. But yeah, right now, it definitely doesn't look good for the way everything is. Like, Twitter's health just looks, like, financial health just looks horrendous. The amount they've been losing, and now you don't even have the employees. That means, like, the amount of, like, talent within it is, like, a lot more concentrated. You don't have as much. So, I don't know what's going to happen with Twitter in the next, like, uh, two to three years. And I agree with you. There's a big ticking time bomb for Elon when, with all these high interest payments at one point. He's not going to be able to like, keep selling his Tesla shares to pay off that, right? Like, at one point, the Tesla shareholders are going to be pretty mad that, hey, if you keep selling this off, we're not going to, like, uh, think to. Yeah, so, Tesla share price has been 52-week low at $120. And I think a month ago, it was $220, isn't it? Yeah, it's dropped. And I think it dropped almost 10% today alone. Like, it, it's just, it's free-falling right now. It's literally a water slide, like, it's, I don't know what's going to happen, thing, but... And was yeah, there a particular reason for the drop aside from 
isn't he gonna step down from it? Like, why the ten percent drop today? I think it's a combination of just a couple things. Like, also, like something you just mentioned, too, like you know, Tesla's like announcing layoffs and a hiring freeze. Now, for a growing company, that's really bad news. So, if you're a shareholder and you just hear that, hey, uh, we're gonna be doing layoffs, we're gonna like stop hiring, and like you're, you're, this is like in the growth company you're invested in, you're probably not gonna be as happy about news like that, right? That's pretty negative news. So. Today's like share price like drop and stuff like that, it kinda makes sense. And like overall too, like I just think Elon just has not had enough time to focus on Tesla, right? Like for like, the next chapter of Tesla. So it's just something that a less and less uh, shareholders are willing to take advantage of and like the Elon premium for Tesla is kind of like sinking now. Yeah. And not just for Elon, I think looking across at the tech space, uh, mm-hmm. my LinkedIn has been dead quiet about any new announcements about Series A, Series B funding. Or even seed funding has disappeared from my feet. And a year ago, I could see that every two or three days. It's just crazy to not see any of that. And now people are talking about layoffs. People are talking about 2023 outlooks. I'm just reading off my LinkedIn LinkedIn page. Uh, you can read yours too, but this is what I have. It's really crazy how there's nothing going on in the tech world in terms of funding. And it's been, what, like eight months since the tech drop down started to really affect everyone. In mm-hmm. April, it's been eight months, and I think you know if you go to layouts to FOI, you see that announced every day. New companies that knock people. I'm just wondering, like, so I'm like, when do you think it will, will start to bounce back of this? Because many people predicted that next 24 to 36 months will be really tough for tech, but initially we thought we're just going to be 12 months. We didn't know it's going to be this long. So, mm-hmm. what do you think? Eight months into this thing, I think we've kind of talked about this a little before. I think that we're kind of nearing the end in terms of like a pure like downturn pressure. Now I just think it's going to start stabilizing a little more. Like we're seeing a lot of companies that are doing a hiring freeze. And then like, I guess like, yeah, layoffs are still happening, but I think it's going to be more of like the hiring freeze. Like the economy itself is going to start stagnating a little bit until like consumers can start affording prices. Then the thing is it all stems down to the most granular level. I think we talked about the CPI index like a little while ago, right? Like the consumer price index. And at one point, if uh, your most like lower class uh, citizens, if they're not able to afford food and stuff like that, right, then like you keep like building on like the next tier of citizens in terms of like oh like class of like oh how much like wealth they have, if they won't be able to afford like premiums and tech and things like that, right? That's kind of the biggest like thing for it. We have to we just have to like uh, have like a more booming middle class. That's going to be when like uh, tech and everything like that. People are going to splurge more on tech, which will again like. Uh, boost all these tech companies and then more people can get hired but i don't think that's going to happen for i think yeah 24 36 months seems kind of accurate for something like that yeah when i first heard about it i wasn't buying it i was like okay that's over exaggeration but every vc is telling their portfolio companies to get 36 months Mm -hmm. i was like okay is 36 months really necessary like do you really need to live for 36 months as a company like what if you don't really reach part market fit shouldn't you just like I'm not saying you should give up. Like if you couldn't reach it, you shouldn't give up long before that runway. And some companies have too much runway. Some companies have like less, too much mm-hmm. less runways. There are some great companies that we're seeing right now who are not able to raise Series A and Series B. Yeah, so I feel really sad about to hear those things. Yeah. Um, some great companies are not able to raise it. Hopefully they survive out of this. I think the best team will. But yeah, we're just seeing like a big correction. I mean, just a year ago, everyone is raising new rounds every single day. Now we're not seeing anything. We're not hearing anything at all. It's just crazy how fast the economic cycle can hit us. So yeah. I might just feel like it's crazy. What are you seeing from your LinkedIn or from your coworkers or people that you're seeing? 
almost everything you just said there is like, yeah, like um, less and less people are willing to take on like those like uh, riskier projects, things like that. You know, like, yeah, before, I think in 2020, 2021, if you want funding, you could probably get funding. Even if your idea was not the best idea, nothing, you could probably find somebody that's willing to take a shot on that idea. Like everyone kind of had a decent sized runway. Now it's like the runway is getting shorter and shorter. But I think that's like what you said, like the best entrepreneurs, that's when they kind of get made out, right? And it kind of helps teach you lessons too. Like if you have a long runway, if you're a good entrepreneur, you have too much wiggle room. You can kind of mess up and nothing happens. So I think this might be good in terms of like that startup business for like the really high quality entrepreneurs. We're going to be able to see like, uh, you know, like them be able to take it to the next level. Because at the end of the day, even if there's like a, the less people that are willing to bet on projects, the amount of dry powder out there, like there's still a lot of cash out there that people want to invest in something, right? So once, but now I think you have to prove results before you're going to be able to get that funding. So it's going to be exciting just to see like, you know, like how startups are able to be as lean as possible. And like, um, it's kind of cool also to see big tech starting to become lean, you know, before just the amount of employees was just kind of crazy, right? Like, George, you told me you had friends that worked at the two biggest ones, Facebook and Google, like, I can't imagine that now it's just like, you know, like, yeah, it's like staying at one of these firms seems pretty like scary. Like if you're going to be able to stay there or not with all the layoffs and everything coming. Well, that should have happened. You know, like no one should ever be evergreen. I think everyone should be pushed around a little bit. Every company, mm-hmm. including, including Facebook and Google. I feel like you can't just be, keep hiring without consequences. There yeah. has to be duplicate roles, bureaucracies. You, you have reduced efficiencies and output. You can have six buildings that just for Google Cloud employees. <laughs> um, maybe you can, maybe you can. I'm just saying, like it might, it might just show that something's not being efficient. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that totally. But like, so what if you were to give an outlook at the end of 2023, mm-hmm. where will we be in like in tech? Like, how will everything look like? What will funding be like? How will raising be like? What will innovation be like? Yeah, I think one of the good things about tech that no other industry really has, like in terms of like our past, is just margins will always be high in tech. So. You know, like once you're able to start scaling, you'd be able to have like high amounts of profit. Like in tech, profitability it has never been as much of a worry just because if you get a large enough user base for your product, like your software, whatever it is, you'll be able to make a pretty high like profit. So I think like what we're going to see now between 2022, 2023 is like all the companies that either already had the cash and like the runway from before in 2020 and 2021 that like still have it and are uh, are using it diligently or like companies that are it's like being as lean as possible to get even now, like and they're able to go their user base. I think by end of 2023, they're going to be in a really good place. Like in terms of like the market share they own, you're going to see a lot of new industries or a lot of new niche markets that get kind of craved like in the next year, just because there's still going to be like a lot of needs for like very random necessity. And one other good part about like tech that like in other industries never really had is like, the scalability you have at any one point, right? Like, uh, for example, like TikTok kind of like blew up out of nowhere. Like ChatGPT, I think they got 2 million users in the, in the span of one week, right? So if you have the product that is like there, you can like scale very fast without like much additional cost to you either. So, yeah, no, I think by the end of 2023, like the companies that are really able to consolidate and like make sure they have the cash flow for the whole time period and they're not like burning money, I think they're going to be end up like on the other side, really, really in a good position. I feel like if you're a VC in 2022, your job is mostly just helping your portfolio companies survive. Yeah. Right? You're probably just standing on the sideline. You're not doing any new investing. 
mm-hmm. uh, until time is good. Like if you're an investor, I'm an investor, like of course, like we'll just be sitting out the storm. Like why will we be doing any diligence? Why will we be spending our time running new startups? Or, unless we have really good deal flows, obviously, but majority of cases, it wouldn't be the case. But coming to 2023, I think there will be a rebound. Most people predict there will be a rebound. And I think a rebound is probably the best time to do something. Because if you start from the entrepreneur's, entrepreneur side, when you got laid off, you have servants, right? You have servants for a couple weeks, ideally. You probably have some savings. And that's usually a good time for people to start new companies. I mean, that's how Airbnb and Uber is born in the last cycle. I think it will be exciting to see what this cycle will bring us. And I just feel like in 2021, if you've been seeing the companies that got funded, it was just a, a bit confusing about what really innovative they are about. Yeah. In some ways, I think we're just in the really deep web tube rabbit hole about this. We're betting several things just one into one to stick around and maybe have a decent market share. Um, mm-hmm. But now we're just seeing that that's not really the case. I, I think everything is kind of like not in the same place, but I think that will change maybe in the second half of 2023 and everything will be different. So that's kind of my prediction. So I'm. Yeah, I think something you said too, like, yeah, like Uber was literally created in 08, like during like the recession back then, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure. It was during like one of the worst economic downturns we've had. Like big Goliath companies have been like created during this downturn. And I think, yeah, it's the fact that so many people have been laid off. And that's a really good point. A lot of these people might have the motivation just to like start their own thing now too, right? And you have someone like the people that were at Google, uh, Facebook, Netflix, or and now, now Tesla it looks like too. Like these are some of the most talented engineers in the world too, right? Like these aren't just like anybody. So yeah, them coming in, like, um, trying to start their own firm, like, their own company, it might be a really exciting time for, like, startups. And it looks like now it's a buyer's market. Like, VCs are going to be able to get, like, a much better deal when it comes to, like, whoever they do invest in. So it's going to be kind of exciting to see what's going to happen at the end of all of this. Yeah. And again, tech doesn't represent the whole economy. Tech mm-hmm. layoffs doesn't mean that there's layoffs happening in real life, too. We're, we're seeing very rare about layoffs happening in anything aside from tech. I think the job market is extremely robust and strong mm-hmm. right now. I don't know. I don't know if that's why you're seeing so on, but I, I think it's been really strong these days. So tech doesn't re- really represent the rest of the economy. But that, that's what I just want to put it out there. Yeah, like I think uh, I have a couple of buddies in like MS banking and stuff like that. And it looks like in terms of like the mining sector, like it's as heavy as it's ever been in terms of deal flow. Like so yeah, there's still deals are still going down. Like people are still buying, people are still selling. All the fancy stuff is still happening. It's just, yeah, like tech is becoming a lot more consolidated just because, yeah, people, I think, are starting to do a lot more due diligence when it comes to tech. Like, I think the other industries always had, like, that kind of due diligence just because, like, those industries are really just, like, tangible ones. So the due diligence for that is something you have to actually be able to see. So you probably can, you can do that pretty easily versus, like, you know, in tech, it's always been kind of hard to do due diligence because if you have a fancy, you know, like, full stack software engineer, that, that just made it look really pretty. It's kind of, you just kind of think it's going to be a great product, right? But maybe it's like the inside of it is really bad. Yeah. Most of the diligence would just be like legal paperwork, incorporation, stock options, all that. Like every company is the same in terms of due diligence. There's nothing really like special unless you, you start to get revenue. I was overhearing this from someone who works in the VC, but they've tried the quantitative algorithm that, not algorithm, just a quantitative way of, of investing. And they realized their returns go up three times if they do not speak with the founder first. Oh, they really? do not speak with a founder on, until they are close to making the investment. Mm. And that has increased our returns by three times. Right. So what I'm trying to say is like tech is a very, it's a sector that's really based on intuition. Yeah. It's based on sales pitches and it's based on relationships. 
it has nothing or le- very little things to do with with the technology. Mm-hmm. At least that is a, that's why it's right now. It shouldn't be, but that's why it is right now. So I think mm-hmm. it just shows that maybe after this downturn, some people change. I, I mm-hmm. think we'll focus more on quality. I hope, but before that, it wasn't. I'm just saying. That's true, actually. Yeah, I like in like terms of like uh, funding and like you know like pitching the VC, it's really just a sales job, right? So yeah, like if the VC doesn't see the actual person, doesn't talk to the founder until they already like the idea, they're already investing in terms of the actual like idea without having a good salesperson, then meeting the founder, I think that could be like a much better way of doing things. And hopefully, that is like a way that people start doing it like in the future. Because I do think that that could help. Hope so. Mm-hmm. And I guess that kind of like um to like bring us to the last thing we kind of want to talk about too is um about LastPass getting uh breached. You know, like I think LastPass is one of the biggest competitors for One Password, right? Yep. Yeah, so it's kind of exciting to see. Well, I guess not the word exciting. It's kind of scary to see the fact that like the cybersecurity market's now starting to not be a security either. Like we're starting to see people like black ha- hackers being able to get in now. What's thoughts on that, George? I'm not surprised to hear this news, but still shocked because I'm not a LastPass user, but I am a one password user. Mm-hmm. So for example, if one password gets breached, then literally everything about me gets breached. It's the same mm-hmm. thing as if your Google account gets compromised. Then if you use Chrome, then they know every password that you have ever used in every website, right? So that's kind of shocking about it's just another thing about on that privacy, which you don't really have these days. And the old standard is that if you use one password, if you use LastPass, if you create a random string of characters that, you know, for every single login, then you're safe, right? But here in the news, it seems like all the data from LastPass's customers were stolen. So I don't think they're safe anywhere, in my opinion. And it just shocks me, like, because where we go from here, right? Do we just go for like a passwordless world where we have like face IDs and stuff? But even face ID, you still, when it doesn't work, you still use your password. So yeah, I just feel like there's really nowhere to hide. And in the future, this is not shouldn't be surprising, like, you know, Pentagon, all the governments, they got hacked all the time. But my point is, like, in the future, there's really no privacy after if you count in how AIs can decrypt the messages, can decrypt your passwords, right? Even though it's, like, really high standards of securities. So I think we're moving to a world where there's really no privacy in the next couple of years or next couple of decades. I think there's a little bit of non-privacy if you have tech. Definitely scary, just in general. Like, with the amount of tech, it connects you with so many people, but also kind of, like, forces you to connect with so many people, right? Like that privacy part that is some parts that you want to keep private, you're not able to anymore just because there are people that like to wear that black hat, that like to you know, like take people's like information, things like that, maybe use it for financial gain. But I think some people just kind of also just do it just to prove that they can do it, right? And yeah, it's becoming kind of scary. Like if you have someone that's just motivated enough, they can kind of know everything about you at this point, like your entire internet history is basically your entire life at one point too, right? Yeah, exactly. So I feel like if your internet is just never let your guards down, always encrypt everything, always have a backup. I think very small number of people actually care about their security when they're browsing the internet. It's just a thing, right? Maybe most people don't care. But maybe like you, so I'm, I don't know about you, but like I have most of my stuff on the cloud. So I don't have anything like locally anymore, right? So if, if anything's stolen, then everything I've ever worked at. Is like, yeah. Or it's in GitHub. It's my code in GitHub. gets stolen. So I just feel like, yeah, that's that's very concerning. No, no, same with me. Yeah, like everything I have is on, on a cloud for me as well because yeah, I like to be able to, like, you know, like leave my laptop, pick up my iPad, or like, you know, pick up my MacBook. It doesn't matter where it is. I just want to be able to have all the files there, right? So I guess there is that trade-off between like ease of access makes it like, ease of access for other people if you're 
stuff too, right? Like if you keep everything in like only a local server, like on your own hardware only, it'd be a lot harder for somebody to be able to get the files. But in that same way, it kind of ruins your whole experience of what you want to do with it, right? Yeah, it's like cold storage. I mean, I have heard about, you know, people having their own servers. So oh, if you're home, you can have like an iron vest. I think that's the name. You can have an iron vest in your room. That's mm-hmm. going to be your hard drive. That's going to be your Wi-Fi. Okay. That's going to be everything your device communicates to and nothing gets stored on Google servers and or Microsoft servers. It's entirely stored by you and owned by you. It's kind of like crypto in, in which you have like a cold storage, right? Mm-hmm. Cold wallet, same idea. So it's really hard to say if that's going to be mainstream, but you know, Honestly, when, when your privacy is being breached everywhere, then you might just use something like Arinvest. Yeah, it'd be interesting just to see what the next phase is going to be when it comes to security. Because I feel like there was like that one point where a lot of people kind of scaled from their privacy. Like, uh, and now it's like a lot of people are starting to fight back saying, yeah, they want their privacy back. So it'll be interesting to see, like, yeah, like these startups that come up too, like, when, you know, cold storages or other kind of better ideas too, maybe just to see, like, how we can protect our ideas, our files, everything. Yeah, it's hard. very hard. It's hard. it's hard. People want to quit Chrome. People want to quit Google. People want to quit <laughs> Facebook, which I think many people actually have, but you can't quit Google. So yeah. <laughs> being honest, you can't quit those like places that store your data. Yeah. You can't just be isolated in like a, a room in Antarctica and you're not communicating with outside world, right? Yeah. So, like, what are you going to be able to do then, right? Like, um, in terms <laughs> of communicating with anybody, like, I don't know how you'd be able to do it. Yeah. I try my best to use a VPN everywhere I go, but mm-hmm. so the thing is, like, that's not really protecting your cybersecurity, right? Just just keeps your browsing anonymous. It keeps your activities anonymous. Yeah, I guess then maybe we could end up with like your tips for uh, cybersecurity. Yeah, my tips. First of all, I always cover my cameras. I think the only thing I don't cover is my phone cameras. If I use a if I use a laptop, if I use an iPad, I cover my camera all the time. Um, I only open it when I have to. They're just like mm-hmm. cybersecurity one hundred and one. I think you know that's super important. Second of all, I think still use password manager, like, you know, one password, last pass, if you still trust it. Because I feel like it's still so much better than having one password in different parts of the sites. And I feel like now they're doing a lot better in terms of auto-filling your passwords. So you don't Mm -hmm. have to actually type in your password every time for you to be filling your password, which creates like a lot of hideous steps. Um, I think now it's a lot easier to do it. So I think people should do that. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, use a VPN when you're at Starbucks, when you're at an airport, don't browse uh, without a VPN. I think that just makes everything you see or do public, um, which is very concerning. I, I wouldn't recommend that. I think just doing those things, I think, then you'll be very secure, relatively secure, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice for all of our listeners. And thanks again, uh, George. And uh, uh, thank you for another episode of The George Bush Show. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Sam. Great host.